This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio, 1123. Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. <laughs> Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. We're back for part two of the discussion about the offense uh, this week. And 
once again, a difficult, difficult topic. Obviously, nobody's feeling too great about this game, but makes it a lot better to talk with Gordon McGinnis about it of PFF. Gordon, how you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure, my friend. And uh, uh, talk a little bit about the offensive line. I, I'm sorry, I need to thank our sponsor first. That's Liquid Death, the water that will brutally murder your thirst. Please give their product a try. They've been very good to us. Uh, in terms of offensive line performance, uh, you know, the Ravens ran the ball very effectively in this game. Uh, if you want to listen back to part one, by the way, if you didn't get part one of the offense, go back and download that right now. You can you can take a moment. And it, this podcast will still be here after you've listened to that one. Uh, the uh, offensive line had a good game of run blocking, I would say. Uh, still some problems in terms of pass blocking uh, and a, obviously a difficult assignment when Garrett and Clowney are on the other side. Yeah, Miles Garrett, I think, probably should be in the discussion for Defensive Player of the Year. I think it's pretty much decided it's going to be Micah Parsons. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a play-by-play basis this year, Miles Garrett's had a, another tremendous season. Um, and you know, He's the player that everyone thought he was going to be coming out of college. Yeah, be uh, you know, and Clowney on the opposite side of that line is a guy who's continually disappointed in his career, but also a number one pick. Uh, still a dangerous player and 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 a run defender of extremely high caliber. I think something he doesn't get a whole lot of credit for. You know, it's not generally known. People think of him as a pass rusher, but I really thought when he went to the sideline, the Raven were, Ravens were in a good position. I think they might have been down six to three at the time, with a chance to come back in that game. Yeah, weirdly, I've always thought that Clowney feels like a really good fit for the Ravens. Like just the way, not not that dominant pass rusher, but does a lot of things pretty solidly. And yeah, to your point, like I think disappointing as a um first overall pick, but had he been, you know, a second round pick or something like that, I think it would have been a very different story. But yeah, I thought I felt pretty good about their opportunities uh with him out of the game and it, you know, just didn't work out that way. Yeah. If it relating Clowney back to a Ravens fit, are you thinking like a little bit like Terrell Suggs in terms of being a great, you know, Suggs was a generational run defender and a, and a pretty good pass rusher. Yeah. And, and, and that's some similarity there in terms of maybe each a little bit lower or maybe Clowney's a little bit better pass rusher than Suggs was, but, but, a, but a little bit less of a run defender. Yeah. I'd probably say they were pretty similar as pass rushers. Um, Suggs, you're right. The way, I don't think people, again, everyone thinks about edge rushers, and I think they often focus on the pass rush, pass rush, pass rush. Terrell Suggs is one of the best edge setters I can remember watching in my time watching football. Just incredible at knowing at knowing the leverage, knowing kind of just what point you need to get just outside the offensive tackle shoulder, all those things. Um, and Clowney can, you know, Clowney's maybe 85% of that as a, as a run defender when he's fully healthy. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing because the, the thing I think of when I think about the Ravens defense is an uncanny ability to stop the run, even when they're um, playing only six in the box. So the two inside linebackers, two two down linemen and two edge setters. And you got to have good players at all three spots to to make that work. I mean, it's it's very hard, you know, first to, to, to have six there. But the Ravens consistently, you know, they had, you know, Nada or Greg or other players who were, who were, were very effective or productive players. And they had Johnson and Suggs, you know, being great edge setters. And they and they had Ray Lewis for obviously in 30 years. And then C.J. Mosley being guys who could back up the line of scrimmage. And, and just that made that that's what caused the Ravens to be able to be so effective uh, running out of basically when other teams force the nickel on you. You still can't run the football uh, even against the light box. 
a light yeah. boxing. Oh yeah, yeah. And and I think as well, that's right. Like if you can if you have players who are really good at setting the edge, it, it doesn't mean that a run is not necessarily going to get outside that. But if the run gets outside, it probably has to go backwards first. The bubble. And it, yep. Yeah. So if you have to bubble out there and the Ravens had, you know, one of the most athletic sideline to sideline linebackers of all time in Ray Lewis, he can then chase that down. Oh, and by the way, they had guys like Kaloti Nata, Kelly Gregg, uh, back in the Super Bowl days, the um, Sam Adams, Tony Saragusa, who would take up blockers and just give him that free ability to get out there and use his, use his athleticism. Yeah. It's just uh, Ravens history. Is just we, we, We've got to realize once in a while how fortunate we were to have those 21 straight years of not allowing as much as four yards per carry. It's just, <laughs> it's a, it's a, just an incredible run to start the franchise history from 96 to 2016. I believe of that. I might have extended to 2017. I'm going to have to go back and look, but it's it's an incredible run of of not getting there. The one the one point I like to make about that is the 2012 season. They almost gave up four yards of carry, but on the final game of the year, on the final play of the year, Dalton kneeled to win the game, and that took them to to like 3.994 for the year. <laughs> so they uh, they just dropped under by uh, by it turned out by three yards, so four yards per carry. All right, let's talk a little bit about the offensive line. And and I think you normally kind of kind of turn this around on the guest and have them interview me about this, but but Gordon has all the information from PFF. So we'll just do our normal back and forth uh uh instead. Stanley, I thought had a had a better game this week than he did against Pittsburgh. Uh you know, primarily facing Wright and Garrett in this game. Wright gave him surprisingly a little bit of trouble. Garrett also obviously gave everybody trouble in this game. Uh what did you see? Yeah, so we had him uh, with just one pressure. Um, I think in the notes you sent me, you had him as like a share of um, the sacks. We potentially don't have him there. But again, overall pretty solid performance given the given the caliber of player he's going up against. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he's not all the way back from his mid-season yeah. injury. I think the level he was back at when he came back early in the season was pretty incredible, all things considered. Um, the mid-season injuries definitely had a little bit of a knock there, but it, it's still a left to the Ravens' offensive line when they can have him out there, um, as opposed to Patrick McCarry, who I think's done pretty admirably in in relief. Um, but yeah, definitely an improvement there. Yeah, and, and Falele's been out there for three games, and that that has not gone well. Um, yeah, I think uh, pe- people may have different views, but it just, it just has not gone well. I, for, for, no, for and, and I think it was you know, Falele was always going to be a project. You know, huge guy, you know, ton of athleticism there as well. Um, but the Ravens drafting him was very unlikely. The game plan was to have him play significant time at left tackle this season, right? Or 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 maybe ever. But the, the, he's still, you know. I don't like making excuses for guys not knowing the game of football, particularly their first round draft picks. So that's been a problem with, with, you know, players like Patrick queen, you know, it's like, well, he had COVID and then he had the, he didn't have COVID, but the the pandemic <laughs> killed off the preseason in his rookie year. And then he also hadn't played football for as long, but inside linebacker, well, you know, he's a first round draft pick. The Ravens, if they wanted to draft him that high, they either got to consider what's the possibility of that. But now Patrick queen in year three is really playing ex- outstanding football. And it has gone from being a, I think it's very unlikely that they pick up his option to, I think it's almost a certainty that they pick up his fifth year option at the end of this year. Yeah. I th- I, I'm, I'm fascinated by what they do at linebacker this off season, because I, my, my view is I still, I, I wouldn't be looking at Patrick Queen long-term. I would probably rather Roquan Smith long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick Queen, the fifth year option. 
and then you know fit another linebacker in next to Smith after that. But it, it's interesting to see because there's there's two parts to that is how how much of it is smith is smith's addition is freeing queen up and kind of helping him be better overall or to the, your point there how much of it is just the game slowing down a little bit for patrick queen and it's probably a little bit of both which makes that decision um on who you're going to bring back I, I think bringing back both long term would be a mistake just on resource wise and i don't think they do that but it does make it a little bit of a more difficult decision on on who you hope to bring back. Yeah. And, and Patrick Queen, of course, will know the handwritings on the wall if Roquan is signed long-term, I think. And that uh, hopefully that would not it, it, um, impact his play. It'd be making a very bad financial decision if that impacted his play in years four or five uh, for that. But but also possibly, I guess, that they would trade him uh, if the right price came along. And, and uh, that would allow the Ravens to uh, get back to playing some dime defense, which I think, you know, having the option to do that has value intrinsically is it being able to to put a safety in that spot is always going to be a better coverage player than your second best outside linebacker. It, it has value to have that option. Okay. And I think, the Ravens, I think it's also potentially what their long-term vision was when they signed Marcus Williams and then they draft um, Kyle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I think Kyle Hamilton this season's actually more of a slot cornerback than he is a safety really yep. in how he's being used. But long-term, if you, if you're thinking about going too high and using those guys as um, safeties back there, and that doesn't mean that Chuck Clark can't exist in the Ravens um, scheme because there's still opportunities for him to fit in in that role when they're playing dime and things like that. So it'll be really interesting to see. I, I think it'd be really fascinating. You know, what would the market be for Patrick Queen this off season if they re-sign Roquan Smith? And everyone looks at it and said, "Oh, they brought in Roquan Smith." Uh, but they'll not re-sign him and they'll get a third round pick compensatory next year. So they lose the second this year, they get it back the following year. But what if the way the Ravens are looking at it is, well, we'll bring in Roquan, we'll re-sign Roquan, and we think we can trade Patrick Queen because we think his play is going to elevate playing next to Roquan Smith. We'll Mm -hmm. trade him for a second round pick next year and they get that second round pick back. And it's really fascinating how they're going to, how they're going to figure those things out this year. Yeah, that would be a, that would, that would they would have to listen to that i mean i think there's a lot of players out there a lot of fans out there who would say no we need to get a one for patrick queen yeah it could be a two and a lesser pick maybe even a two and a five is reasonable in terms of total total value that seems like a lot to to get for two years of patrick queen but they got a one for marquise brown so i I, I I don't know what's going on anymore i I don't think a one's out of the question if he if he finishes this season the way he's playing just now and becomes a pro bowl player Mm -hmm. um and I think linebacker is a is a very tough position to evaluate in today's NFL. So if you're an NFL team picking in the late 20s and you want to improve at the linebacker position and you know you're getting them for two years, someone might give up a one. You know, maybe it's similar to the, to the um, Marquise Brown one where it's a one Patrick Queen and the Ravens give up another pick. Right. Yeah, so that's that would end up being a huge draft capital hall if they if they decided to do it anyway a lot of a lot of fans with varied opinions on that obviously but uh, let's get back to ronnie stanley here because i i I want to talk a little bit we're talking about offensive tackle and all of a sudden we get to inside (laughs) linebacker that's just i love these conversational uh tangents but um stanley in in this game as i scored it had three pressures and a third of a sack i know you guys only had one pressure one of the things i see with stanley and he's still doing it is he gives ground to mirror and he does it very effectively. And particularly when Lamar Jackson is back there, he can take a bump 
And so I think a lot of that is is in coming in two ways. One is that the pressure is coming specifically between two and a half and three seconds where we have a difference of, of methodology. And also that sometimes the cone is being invaded. And so he's too close to the quarterback where PFF wouldn't score it as a pressure. And I do um, because I really want the want the quarterback to be comfortable stepping into his throw. Uh, and, and that means a, a, a fair size cone has to be not invaded uh, uh by the by the by penetration against the lineman. Yeah, I think that's definitely how Stanley plays in terms of he's okay giving up a little bit of ground and you know sometimes that potentially leads to a little more than he really should give up. By now you're probably noticing that there's strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well that's because it's not beer. It's actually mountain spring water from the Alps and it's called liquid death. Why is it called liquid death? Well because it will brutally murder your thirst and their infinitely recyclable Tallboy cans help bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of their profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. By now, you probably know how much I love Liquid Death. Well, every week I tell you about a different way I've used Liquid Death to mess with people. This week it was taking a cooler full of Liquid Death to the softball game. Because as our team chugged down Liquid Death, our play improved while the other team drank other stuff, and maybe got a little sloppy out on the field. So take Liquid Death. The other team has no clue what you're doing. Or take it to work. We've talked about that many times. Drag it around to your friends at school. Maybe the carpool lane. Maybe we'll talk about the carpool lane next week. Just take Liquid Death. Enjoy it. It's ice cold water. You're going to have a great time and fun. Go get Liquid Death at your local Harris Teeter or 7-Eleven or find Liquid Death retailers near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash film study. That's liquiddeath.com slash film study. Yeah, I, I had him for one penetration on a run play. I don't know if you've got a run play where he's downgraded on a loss earlier in this game. Um, but uh, but that definitely, uh, uh, let's see, was, was on the, it was in quarter two on the second drive on a, on a run for negative one that effectively ended up going left and he let, uh, he let a guy slip off him and disengage pretty easily for the tackle. I don't know if you guys have him for that. Yeah, I, d- I don't know the specific play. He's got a, a 76.0 run block. Uh, no, sorry, that's uh, that's possible. Yeah, I was looking at true pass set there. Um, uh, I don't know the specific play. Um, we do have him with a seven, uh, 67.4 run blocking grades. There will be some, um, some downgrades in there. Yeah. Uh, five blocks in level two, three out of three on his poles in this game. Uh, I think he had two that I gave him the courtesy point, at least one there. Yeah, two out of the three. So when when there's a – this is just a methodology thing, but when there's a uh, a two-man pull, either from left to right or right to left, the trailing player doesn't have to actually engage and make a block because oftentimes there's, there's not that opportunity. I give them one – I give them a point anyway as long as they stay clear of the track and don't miss a block that was presented to them. So as long, so it's just a, a special case, and Stanley had a couple of those in this game. Uh, C for the game as I'd scored it. You guys had him at a at a seventy six for the game. Uh, overall, yeah, seventy six point one overall. Okay, all right. So it might have been it might have been a B as you guys scored it in terms yeah, of some pro- decent pass prob- Yeah, probably around about a B, a B minus maybe. Okay. All right, fair enough. Ben Powers, uh, a, a player who uh, leads all PFF guards in terms of his pass blocking score for the year, I believe, or he did a week ago. I don't know if that's still true. I think it is still true. Um, I will I will confirm that just now, but I'm pretty certain it is. All right, I'll go through uh, a couple. He does. Of he does. He is still he is still out in front. He's eighty seven point eight, and Joe uh, Tooney is eighty six point eight. 
All right. That's that's nice. That's not an insu- insu- uh, insubstantial lead there even. Uh, continue to solid play this week. Four pass rush events, though. Two and a half pressures and a quarterback hit as I scored it. And I think you told me something, and this was last week because it happened to Linderbaum, that PFF does not score a quarterback hit when a when a lineman is pushed into the quarterback and that causes him to fall. Yeah. So uh, we chart it only when the defender hits the quarterback to the ground, not when um, okay. the defender gets driven back in. Uh, sorry, the offensive lineman gets driven back in. Okay. I, I, I Both of them seem pretty good to me in terms of getting the quarterback on the ground, getting a 300-pound lineman on the top of him, but there's no chance of getting roughing the passer penalty. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, two and a half pressures for Powers, and there was definitely some proximity pressure in there. So, if Ben, if you're out there listening after uh, coming on the show, we really appreciate it. Uh, uh, Certainly PFF is not grading you as harshly as I am in this particular game. Three missed blocks. He went six of six on his pulls. Last two games, Ben Powers has made 16 straight pulls. It may have even have a longer streak if I go back to the previous game, but he had been not only not you know, getting some zeros on his pulls, he'd been actually missing blocks and causing problems uh, on, on some of the pulls. If you go back to the Jacksonville game and some of the other earlier games, uh, to see the the – the much better pulling these last two games is something I really associate much more with the Ravens being able to teach anybody how to pull. We saw that with Hurst, with Bozeman, you know, guys who aren't particularly athletic linemen being able to do it. Yeah. And I think from a PFF perspective, the last two weeks, his run blocking grade's been about 60, which I think people think that's low. That's not, it's, it's pretty average. It's pretty solid mm-hmm. performance. If you can be there and that's an improvement on where he's been um, earlier in the season. So, I a pretty strong case to be made that he's the Ravens' most impl- improved player on offense, just on how much he's improved in pass protection, um, and certainly over the last couple of weeks, starts to be seems to be starting to find his uh, feet as a run blocker a little bit more, and that could be that could be pretty important down the stretch. Mm-hmm. The Ravens had not uh, been promoting him for the Pro Bowl. I think they're they're on it now, but yeah, you know, it's an interesting case with him and Linderbaum that that uh, Powers has a terrific run blocking record this year and a not as good, a not as shiny, a um, uh, sorry, other way around, terrific pass blocking record, not as good a run blocking record. But Linderbaum's just the opposite: great run blocking record and not as good a pass blocking record for sure. Um, it, we talked about this a little bit about before the show, but I want to I want to give you an opportunity to explain how PFF combines the pass and run blocking score to come up with a single number. Yeah, so on a on a game specific level, so over the course of the season, these things kind of even out a little bit. But on a game specific level, and I'll do my best to explain this because sometimes this stuff even confuses me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Um, but if you take the Pittsburgh game, for example. They had 61 plays, not including um, penalties that negated the play. Only 23 of those were um, pass blocks. So they were really heavily, like not far off 60% mm-hmm. um, of, of a, you know snaps where he was a run blocker. And he also had a high percentage of uh, positively graded blocks in the running game. So when that factors into the, to the grading system, so... On the grading system, the first first of two things that happens is his on and run blocks. He's graded anywhere from minus two to plus two. The the furthest extremes of that are pretty um, slim. It's more likely going to be um, zero plus point five minus point five. So you know, and I'll just tell you for for standpoint the the guys who appreciated PFF in the old days, and I'm talking about like 2010 and earlier, certainly 
really loved seeing the scores reflected that way. It's so much more than the current method. But I, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I definitely, I used to love the way uh, it was done. I, I've kind of, I've looked at this stuff enough now that I can apply some additional context and stuff, but I, I fully understand anyone who has the opinion that they, they preferred that old way. It was the tough thing with that was it was quite hard to compare small sample size to big sample size, but I think that's still hard with this system as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, things can be weighted differently and all those things. So first of all, you know, he's graded in all those plays. On each of those plays, that's compared to the league average for a player at that position. And there's other factors that come in based on down and distance, um, the type of play and all those sorts of things. But effectively, you know, the average for a center on a play could be plus one point, plus 0.19. And if Linderbaum gets a plus 0.5, the grade that he would actually take forward from that play is the the difference between those. Um, So that's the first thing that's done to, and that's, working out the normalization so it's kind of taken what the average grade would be on that play um, and applying his difference similarly works you know for a negative so on a negative on a play that the average is positive you would take a bigger negative Um, after that's all done when that goes in you're looking at um, converting that to somewhere between zero and 100 Um, and in the Steelers game for example he had like a 28.7 pass blocking grade and he had a um, 90.9 run blocking grade the Ravens running the ball as much as they did that game uh, makes that like an atypical performance in terms of volume it was also a game where he had a lot of positive blocks so that kind of increases that further up and then in the pass blocking side of things he had negative plays there but because the small sample of the pass blocking plays in that that also kind of tilts the overall balance of that game to look at that not as harshly because the actual number of plays came on a smaller sample. So when it all gets combined then it kind of folds in there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the kind of roundabout way of explaining that. I, uh, I would love to get into the wires of exactly how that works from a mathematical perspective, because it, it still seems to me that you, you did tell me one other thing that in terms of run and pass blocking combination in, I don't know if it's annual scores or in game scores that, that, that then roll up to annual levels. If if the um, that at center in particular, he has a higher weighting. Linderbaum would have a higher weighting of run blocking to pass blocking score than say at tackle certainly, and guard would be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, and I think the other thing there is that depending on like where the percentage of um, positive blocks are among possessions, but like just on so like on a game by game level, for example, take that Steelers game. He got eighty five point four overall. He had 28.7 as a pass blocker, 90.9 as a run blocker. The game, game by game, it's a little tougher because the uh, sample size causes mm-hmm. things to be kind of blown out, blown up proportion-wise a little bit. On the season, he's 83.4 as a run blocker, 54.1 as a pass blocker, and it's 75.1 as a pass blocker. So that's like, it brings it back a little bit more into focus. You know, that that run blocking grade in the Steelers game still gave him a tremendous performance that week. He was still, I think the highest graded offensive lineman that week, just because of that. He's not the highest graded offensive lineman in football this year. And his overall grade is a little bit lower um, when you factor in the whole season as well. All right. All right. So anyway, we'll, we'll, I, I would love to have an off season discussion about that. Who would, who would be the guy I would talk to about really understanding the math of the grading system? 
Uh, it's a good question, actually. I would need to find out who the who the best person for that would be. Um, potentially Timo. Um, Timo okay. Ruske might be. I've talked to him before. Yep, that'd be great. Uh, ben Brown or anybody like that. Yeah, ben, Ben's a good Ben's a good call as well. Okay. All right. All right. Well, terrific. Uh, Powers uh, three level two blocks one pancake. I had him as a C for this game. I uh, don't know how how that would relate for PFF. Obviously, a big run game, so maybe maybe better. Yeah, he was. Yeah, probably probably around about that um, B level. Um, again, really good game as a pass blocker. Um, pretty solid in the running game. All right, Linderbaum. In my opinion, this game, this was his best game as a pro, and and that you know goes back to my very strong bias that you got to be a good pass blocker first and a good run blocker second. And this game, he only gave up half a pressure, as I saw a share of one pressure. Had four missed blocks. He'd been having a lot of problems with losing blocks at the line of scrimmage. And this goes back to some of his size issues, obviously size and like both an issue that he's getting off balance a fair amount. And it'd been like, you know, five out of six, six out of seven on a weekly basis or, or losses at the line of scrimmage. This time only four misses, which is good. Two losses at the line of scrimmage and two that were in level two or were on, he didn't have any pull misses. So it was in level two. Uh, so anyway, very positive in terms of quality of block change on the misses and then only having one, you know, half negative event uh, is very positive in my system. How did PFF score it? Yeah, it was, um, I think we had a couple other games this season where he had, uh, in fact, we had one, the the Buffalo game was the only one he had a higher pass blocking grade than he did this past week. What's really interesting is if you look at his um, really bad pass blocking games this season, first one came in week one against the Jets, um, then against the Giants in week six, um, then against the Steelers in week 14, and then another couple of poor ones against the Bucks um, and against the Saints. Not great against the Panthers as well. Really big, strong defensive interior linemen. Yep. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the book on him coming out. And I think the the good thing I would look at with Linderbaum is, you know, long term, he's going to have to improve as a pass blocker. Short term, we're seeing him improve in situations that are a bit more favorable to him. And he has been everything is advertised as a run blocker, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he's added wrinkles to the Ravens running game because he can move and all those things. So I'd, if you're a Ravens fan right now, I, I think you can look at some of those really bad games as a pass blocker and get a little bit worried. Based on what we've seen, I think the likelihood on him being a, a Pro Bowl caliber center is relatively high. Um, and I think he's I think he's going to turn out to be a pretty a pretty good player on that offensive line for them. Yeah, that it could certainly develop at any time, but you know, I would say he's not Creed Humphrey coming into the league where he obviously dominated his very first year. We're not you know, nobody's putting in that category. I, I, you know, I overall because of the pass blocking, I have to give his overall grade for the year high C, mid C. But here's what I would say about that: that's an incredible place to start. Almost every Ravens rookie lineman has improved with time in terms of things, and I think there's just areas a very obvious improvement for Linderbaum where he won't have a lot of trouble, like picking up stunt handoffs better than he has so far this year. And there's some other areas it's going to be more difficult, but I still think he's got room for improvement that he can learn whatever kind of hand fighting he does at the end of, at the NFL level, get a little bit stronger, probably actually put on a little more weight too to play because he can afford to lose a little bit of quickness to gain a little bit more of a sand in the pants anchor than he has right now. Yeah. The stunt point is really good. I think that's, arguably in fact i don't even know how arguable it is to be honest his biggest struggle point this season anytime i've looked up negatively graded plays it's just so often it's just being even simple things like just being that that 
um, click too late in passing yeah. over or taking over a new block. And those are things that will come with time. And then, yeah, I think there probably is room for him to, there's definitely room for him to get stronger, whether or not that involves adding weight or not. Um, but yeah, I think being stronger is going to help him against some of those tougher interior offense, uh, defensive linemen. You made a great point earlier about how he's added new wrinkles to the run game. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, I really like that element of who Tyler is, is that, He's a quick guy playing between two big guys. And Zeitler is kind of in between being a big guy and a finesse player, but he's still more of a big player at this point in his career than a finesse guy. Cle- uh, sorry, Powers, a total a power player. Uh, there, there's, you know, he's a good pass blocker, but he's a power player. And then Cleveland, boy, you saw Cleveland get even just 14 snaps at Pittsburgh, and you see how much he can drive a player off the line of scrimmage, particularly with Linderbaum's help. I get very excited about what the prospect are of those two players playing together in the future. And it looks like at some point they're likely to play together. Yeah, I think so. And I think again, to the comment you've made, I think it might've been in the previous show, the Ravens are, you know, they can develop these guys to do the movement things they want to do and develop guys to be able to um, pull block pretty well. And I think that combination of guys on the interior could be pretty, pretty special for them. All right, so what else did I have? Eight out of eight on pulls from Linderbaum, so that's good. Uh, he, that isn't an area he'd really been having much of a problem. Three blocks in level two. Uh, you know, another thing we we don't comment on every week, but I tend to look at it at least is the snaps were solid this week, and he wasn't getting Huntley into trouble, which, you know, there were a lot of things getting Huntley into trouble this week, but but it really wasn't the snaps, to my way of thinking. Did, did you guys grade him negatively on any snaps? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, that's very good. Uh, a minus after adjustment for Linderbaum, but anyway, one of his one of his best games of the year, probably from my point of view, his best his best game as a pro, and I I think it might be that Buffalo game, but I got to go back and look at my own. Yeah, uh, I, and I think on a, on a from the PFF perspective, although it's not his highest graded game of this season, uh, I think it's definitely his most balanced game. Okay, all right. Uh, Zeitler, I had no negative plays for Zeitler. Didn't have a pressure event, no penetration events, no nothing. Uh, did miss four blocks. One of those was at the line of scrimmage, which, by the way, that's fantastic. He's only losing once at the line of scrimmage uh, during the whole game. Three out of five on pulls, three blocks in level two, one pancake. Uh, how did PFF have him? Yeah, with no um, no pressures against him. Um, 71.2 run blocking grade, so ties in pretty well with that. Again, just another good performance for him. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see him make the Pro Bowl this year. You know, he's he's one of the best guards in the NFL history, probably, but certainly in recent decades, to um, never make the Pro Bowl. It's very, yeah. very odd. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things, and this is really a compliment for PFF, is PFF has changed football for offensive linemen. And if you look back into the, in the, into the 90s even, but certainly if you look back into the 70s, when I started being a football fan, the Pro Bowl was decided by who was good five years ago. It's not, it's not decided by who's good now. Nobody gives a crap. You know, they, they, you know, these sports writers are, have all got their idea of who's good. They vote for him. And, you know, it took a basically a, a cataclysm to change to the new dominant lineman. Usually it made a, a, you know, a great rushing year from somebody like OJ Simpson or whatever would, would might change your opinion on who was a good offensive lineman. But it, now with PFF, you know, I believe Marshall Yanda is the kind of player who might not have made the Hall of Fame probably would have anyway or but but now being in the pff era he's he was a sure thing i I hope so it would be it would be a nice legacy for us to have as a company that we can um make that impact i know offensive linemen definitely don't always uh love pff and uh, at times i think there's kind of 
uh, rivalry there in certain aspects. But I, I do think there is uh, there is some really positive cases like that as well. I, I think all all NFL players really fall into the I'm not really crazy about getting graded category. <laughs> uh, you know they they want it, they want to be favorable about it. I I I like it, but then I'm actually a little concerned when a a parent of a player like the big one is Kennedy. Uh, uh, so Maurice Kennedy was with the Ravens and I always had some, you know, some marginally positive things to say. He hadn't been on the field when he was on the field. He played okay. And, you know, I, I was generally positive about him. His father sends me a nice note when he leaves the team saying, you know, we, we, we always really appreciate how you wrote about him. And I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> for great in some way. But anyway, so you always got to, got to be careful on, on both directions. Yep. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. So a for Zeitler in this game, he was the highest rated of the Ravens lineman as, as I had it even better than Linderbaum. Moses, though, certainly had one of the coolest games of the season. Very solid job handling Garrett and Clowney on that side as a pass blocker. And he absolutely terrorized the Browns in the run game. Just, yeah, just dominant as a, as a run blocker uh, in this game. Um, we had him with, uh, I think it was three total pressures um, in the game. But yeah, run blocking was absolute absolute strength. Two pressures and one quarterback hit. And I think the quarterback hit actually was on one of those plays where he got pushed into the quarterback to, to knock yep, him down. So that would, just, that, that would that make size. sense. Yeah. You know, one of the things about PFF and I will often come up with a different score, but there's one certain thing is we're, we're both cooking with water. We're cooking with the same ingredients. We're watching the same film and we're generally coming up with the same results. And and if it, if there are differences, it's generally a methodology or definitional difference as opposed to a, uh, you guys just haven't had a grade kind of thing. It's not yeah. like that at all. I have a lot of respect for what you guys do. And by the yeah. way, there is no other source for league wide, <laughs> you know, looking across things. So I'm stuck with you anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, two pressure one could we get that. Two missed blocks. One of those was a loss of the line of scrimmage, which going up against Garrett and Clowney for the whole game, got probably a little bit of right in there too, uh, is very impressive. But here's where it gets ridiculously good. Five level two blocks, one pancake, 10 out of 10 on polls. And I've got more to say about that is that I talked earlier about it with Stanley about how you can get a courtesy point on a poll by being the trailing player. Well, on every one of uh, Moses's polls, he was the trailing player behind either Linderbaum or Seitler. It's Linderbaum most of the time. And he, he made nine of 10 points and only got one courtesy poll. And those polls he had, some of those dominant things you'll ever see, he's pushing people multiple yards uh, usually often five or 10, uh, just a brilliant game of blocking five highlights, which ties the high for any Ravens offensive lineman this, this year, as I score them. Yeah. And I, I think as well, if you, I, I know he hasn't been the most consistent player this season. He's been a little bit up and down. Mm-hmm. I, I think his high level has been very, very good. But if you think to the Ravens offensive line this year, and I know everyone focuses on the negatives of the offense this year, I think just on the offensive line, the trauma they had at offensive tackle last year were by, mm-hmm. you know, they just, Ronnie Stanley's injury just crippled what they were trying to do. This year, Morgan Moses has come in there and he's, you know, very much solidified that right tackle spot and has, you know, allowed them to do what they've had to do to cover for Stanley when he's been hurt. Um, and I think a very underrated part of the offensive line being really strong this year is that strength at right tackle. Absolutely. Com- completely agree. First of all, and I think it's interesting they never tried to move him because I thought that might be part of the solution in not having Stanley for the start of the season 
would be moving him over there, maybe playing Jawan James at right tackle. We kind of learned in the preseason it was probably not going to be that way. It looked like Jawan James was going to take over at left tackle. But uh, but they certainly, I think it, it's borne out that they've clearly made the right choice to not try and move Moses because he's been very productive on the right side. Uh, and I observe the same thing you do about a lot of game-to-game variation in his play. And yet I'm used to kind of seeing that from offensive linemen because, you know, you get, a, you get a bunch of pressure events one game, you don't get them the next game. I'm, you know, and as, mu- as much as um, there's game-to-game fluctuation, I think his floor is still relatively high, yes. especially in relation to what we had last year. So, like, the the floor is still a pretty solid offensive lineman. Yeah, absolutely. And the Ravens, as a, as a team, only Fa'alele has really had a fall-off-the-table game uh, at, at tackle or at any offensive line position. Everybody else, they've they've been kind of in the high F range when they've been bad. Uh, and, and that that's included a game or game, maybe even two games from Moses this year. But uh, uh, generally speaking, you know, we haven't had those, you know, O'Neill Cousins, James Hurst at his worst kind of games, uh, or, or unfortunately, Daniel Falalele this year, who who, uh, who had one really awful game. Yeah, that's O'Neill Cousins. That's a name that brings back a nightmare. It's from the early PFF days. There you go. Uh, so B after adjustment for on on the way I graded it for Moses, I could understand if if someone looked at his run block in this game and said it was more valuable to the team, but it, it did have some pass blocking events. Um, anything else about the offensive line in general before we move on to some skill position players? Talk about them. No, I think overall, you know, really nice run blocking game, pretty solid pass blocking as well. That for a, a, a complete unit, um, probably their best, even been their best out in the season. Which you know, to be fair against the team who have struggled against the run. So maybe not necessarily a huge surprise there, but I think pretty solid overall. Yeah. I think what we often see is teams overcompensate for what they really are bad at. And it would not have shocked me had Cleveland come out and sold out to stop the run, forced Huntley to pass. And by the way, maybe that's even part of what went into the decision making to, to throw the ball a little more than they probably should have in this game. Uh, was that you know if Cleveland overcommits to the run, they can stop it, um, and and then you're really left out of options in terms of of how you attack the uh, attack a defense that uh, that is in that mode. It might even be if, yeah. if they start to run blitz. You know, one of the things about about run blitzing is you can be in the in the backfield if if they are trying to do any kind of RPO stuff or they're or they're or they're just passing off play action or whatever else it might be, and you can really uh, de-effectualize that. Yeah, I'd you know, I kind of just agree with your general point there. I'm not really too sure about if I can add anything that um, adds much value. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about some skill position players, and you're, it's this is a tough conversation anyway. It's tough to pick out some little highlights, but we got to talk about some bad, some good. Who would you like to start with? Yeah, I think so. I, I think this is maybe even like a, a kind of seasonal overall thing, but like I. Demarcus Robinson, a player for me who is in a tough situation because he effectively is the Ravens' wide receiver one at this point. Mm-hmm. If you give me a world whereby he's their third wide receiver, maybe even maybe even their second wide receiver, if you had Bateman, Bateman, Robinson, and Andrews all at full strength, I think that's probably okay. Um, outside of the fumbles, which in this game inexcusable, his overall play at wide receiver I think has been pretty solid and has been a a rare highlight in their highlights with a very low bar to clear, I think probably. Um, But I think he's had a pretty solid season and he's a guy who I would love to see them 
bring back just in a reduced role. I, I think there's a fit he can have on this offense. It's just, it's not as the leading receiver, which is what he's been asked to do effectively. Right. I, I agree with that. He, he'd been on a really improving track in terms of yards per target recently. And to me, that's that's the first stat I always look for in a wide receiver is can they really maintain a good yards per target? Because that's the one that combines your catch rate with your yards, your uh, yards per reception. I, Robinson, to me, was a guy who who was started the season terrible, had a, had a pretty good run at midseason. And then Lamar is lost and, and now he's back. Not not doing too much in that particular area. I'm going to turn off my video since I imagine this is very distracting. You, there's, something, <laughs> there's something wrong with my camera here. So if I, if I turn off the, the, the video, I won't be able to communicate with you in the same way, but, but, uh, but anyway, you will, uh, uh, will have that. Uh, he, he's a player, obviously I, I would agree with you entirely about um, you, you, it's not an ideal world where he's your ex receiver. And, you know, he has to be getting off the line of scrimmage in the way he does. But um, he, he does seem to find space in a way I've been very appreciative of. Yeah, I, I, there's little things he does well um, that I, I think have made him, you know, I don't necessarily even think the plan was for him to be the leading receiver after Bateman went out. I think they probably hoped that was, or, you know, uh, you know, in that X receiver role. Um but there's just little things he does, like finding little bits of extra space and um, running routes particularly well. So, yeah, there's just little things I think he does well that I think make him a valuable player to have around. Just as I said, again, not not in that, not in the leading role. All right, I, I'm going to talk about J.K. Dobbins a little bit. Now, we've, we obviously hit on him in the first show a little bit in terms of what he did for the Ravens' offense, but he's in the game for 24 snaps, 14 of them he got touches, um, and. Certainly, he's running the ball for a high yards per carry, and he's doing the things at the line of scrimmage that we've mentioned that have been positive in terms of the initial making use of the holes created, which are not insignificant by this good offensive line. Um, to get into level two, he's been very good. In terms of actually finishing these runs against the safety, that's where it's it's fallen down a little bit. And uh, he certainly he's left a lot of yards on the table and yet he's had two consecutive weeks that it's hard to find many times in Ravens history that that, that somebody's been this effective over two consecutive weeks. I, I had a thought yesterday, I think it was, as I thought back to the last two weeks, and if he had that final gear, I think we might be talking about a Ravens running back who had 200 yards on the ground two games in a row. Yeah. Because uh, he was, you know, a couple of breaks away from, from doing that. And I, the biggest compliment I think I can give J.K. Dobbins is that um, him, along with a couple other players in the NFL, have made me rethink uh, how much of an issue it is to spend the second round draft pick on a running back. And I think at the time when the Ravens made the pick, didn't love it, but I, the logic I understood was, you know, we want to go and find the running back that can create that little bit extra. Because if we know we can run block really well, we can find enough extra to really... Um, make the most out of that and you know it can lead to long touchdowns breakaway runs and stuff like that and i understood the logic didn't necessarily entirely agree with it from a, a compensation spend and stuff like that but i think between him and some of the um, rookie running backs we've seen in the second round over the last couple of years like you can really see that second third round might be the sweet spot for running backs whereby you get a guy who's maybe more likely to be durable 
but also has the athleticism that can find those extra extra yards. Um, and you know, you can see the difference. I, I know everyone loves Gus Edwards, and I love Gus Edwards as a player. I, I think he's very good at what he does, but what he does is somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. J.K. Dobbins is a player who injuries have probably robbed him from, you know, having seasons whereby he could have been a top three to five running back in the NFL. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know certainly the injuries are disappointing, and it's hard to believe Dobbins will be entering year four in just a few weeks, uh, in terms of of where he is. Because the Ravens obviously have have expended most of that draft capital now, and in, in in what they've gotten. But then I look at the other side of this, and I say, J.K. Dobbins has averaged almost six yards per carry in his career with the Ravens, and a not insignificant number of carries now. He's at five point eight this year after being at eight point seven five the last two games. If he can, you know. I, 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 there's, I, I don't know that anybody's ever run for 6.0 yards per carry or what's the longest period that anybody's done that, but it's not that long in terms of seasons. Uh, like has anybody done it over the course of two or three seasons even? I, I'm not sure there's a, there's a there's an NFL player who's ever done it over his first two or three years at that level. Jamal Charles is probably the the one guy who stands out as having a high yards per carry, but I think he was like five point something. Mm-hmm. And so the Ravens, you know, if, if, he's a special player. A little disappointing he hasn't turned into the receiver that the Ravens hoped he would be because they thought he would be a big receiving threat. What, where are you on the Tyler Beatty situation? Do you know much about that in terms of, of, you know, we certainly hope he comes back and does something, but at this point it's a lost draft pick because they already cut him, even though he's on their practice squad still. Yeah, yeah, and it was a, a draft pick I thought had the potential to be like a year one contributor with the injuries mm-hmm. and stuff they had. Um, I, I I think he was potentially just bumped out by a really impressive preseason by Justice Hill, which, you know, is potentially the Ravens not being as forward looking as they, as they should be, but maybe that's why I bring him back to the practice squad and they are going to bring him back. And, you know, maybe next season he has in the active roster at that point. Yeah. Well, he'll have, he'll have a chance and he won't have a year. Oh no, no, that's not true. Cause he was a draft pick. Uh, I'm not, I'm actually not sure what his, what his status is. If he's a draft pick, has he already signed a four-year contract at some point that then is going to make him be out in four? Did he not accrue a year of service? I, I'm not sure how that exactly works. Yeah, I'm not. So, I'm not sure in the yeah. on the workaround there. All right. Um, all right. Well, your turn. We talked about Dobbins. We talked about Robinson so far. I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about Devin Duvernay's usage. So, I I kind of think like the performance they've got out of him this season's fine. Uh, you know. He's had a uh, career uh, high in yards with still three games to go. He's probably going to finish with around 500 or so receiving yards. I just, I, I would like to have seen him get the ball more um, like as a, or on jet sweeps and things in this past week. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think it's something that he can be good at. It's not, I don't want to make Debo Samuel comparisons because I, he's not that type of player but you don't have to be that type of player to still be effective. Debo Samuel is a kind of freak in that sense, but Devin Duvernay, I think, can contribute um, in a pretty substantial way if you get him the ball on those things. And uh, we've seen it a little bit this season be relatively effective. So um, in a in a game whereby, you know, they just needed to find a little bit extra here and there, um, you know, he's now gone two weeks in a row without having a carry. So it uh, might be time to try and get him another couple of touches. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree. They they now have a fairly decent running back stable. 
you know, of healthy guys. But for a long time, I was saying, line him up in the backfield. Yeah. I mean, at a sidecar, he's a, he's a great edge threat. Of course, they like to have edge threats to both sides. And one way to do that is to jet motion Duvernay from one side to the other. And then you have sidecar back going in the other direction uh, and, and Jackson up the middle. That's that's certainly very powerful and they're, they're what they do with counters. But, uh, but you know, you look back to that Cincinnati game this year and how he was used to do a, a wide variety of things. They threw the ball to him. They ran it. They, you know, did all sorts of uh, pitches to him and whatnot. I'd love to see that again in terms of really trying to get his athleticism and speed more into the game because the, the Ravens offense certainly could use it. Yeah. And anytime you can just add, you know, kind of plus athletes in that sense to to kind of move things forward a little bit, find some splash plays here and there. Um, I, I think it's always something that you should consider doing. All right, we'll move on. I'll talk about Justice Hill uh, real briefly here. Justice Hill brought in in a lot of passing situations in this game. I think you mentioned it was 16 of his 24 snaps were pass plays. So he only had one carry, one reception in this game. So nothing like the designated touch level that the other players did. I've got him for six total set and chip blocks in the game where he actually tried to, uh, uh, you know, at least tried to make some uh, block. Uh, he's been up and down as a pass blocker this year. I think, you know, largely speaking, um, he's probably been more good than bad, but I, I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in how PFF has scored it so far. Yeah. Um, let me just dig into his pass blocking grade. Uh, yeah, again, up and down. Um, but this past week, solid enough. Um, he's only really had, I think, two really poor games, um, but not many kind of standout games as a pass blocker. The interesting thing I I think with him as well is that early on in the year before um, Dobbins and, and Edwards came back, uh, I, I kind of thought he might be their best option to, oh, yeah. to run the ball with. In fact, I think we actually spoke about that after, I think it was the New England game I did. And, um, and in a in a couple of games this season, we've seen him be you know a pretty effective run. He's averaging five and a half yards a carry, just shy of this season. So there's there's still a place there for him. I think he's you know a fourth round pick in 2019. This is going to be probably his best season as a as an offensive contributor um, for the team. Do you think the Ravens bring him back on one of their kind of their Anthony Levine special deals where they get him two years, they give him about a 400 or $500,000 bonus, realizing that there's really no, but there's no other market for him. I don't think uh, maybe there is, maybe there's somebody who sees his special teams playing and say, Hey, we need to get this guy. He could even be the captain of our special teams maybe next year. And if, uh, if Bill Belichick's still in new England, then I think the two options for justice Hill are probably new England and Baltimore next year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You're not you're not hinting that Bill Belichick might be in, this, in some trouble after the Stanford band play yesterday. Oh, that was. Uh, <laughs> no. I, I mean, the Bill Belichick thing. Rather than him being in trouble, if I was Bill Belichick at his age, that might have been the play that I just decided. I, I'm not even. I'm not even letting Chandler Jones reach the end zone. Like I'm drafting my resignation letter. I'm retiring. I'm <laughs> before I'm he gets there. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy that. Just one of the most incredible play. I, you know, obviously the. <laughs> off on a slight tangent here, but like Stevenson's pitch was kind of like, okay, that's a bit stupid. Yes. Jacoby Myers at that point is obviously clearly panicked, but I I, I will think about this till the end of days and um, I'll never be able to understand why the option that Jacoby Myers chose 
was a 20 yard heave back towards Mac Jones. Who it's the no only one player else, back there. Yeah. No, no one else <laughs> behind him. And Chandler Jones was kind of there waiting for the pass. It was just it's, incredible. It's, it's, the, the play was filled with so much delicious irony to me. And <laughs> I, I hate to use that term, but, but Chandler Jones missed the tackle initially on Stevenson that led <laughs> to Chandler Jones game winning touchdown. <laughs> and, and if this somehow costs Bill Belichick a playoff berth, like now I'm rooting for the Patriots to finish strong here finish uh nine and eight would be perfect i guess because you yeah. know we don't don't, don't, want to, don't want to threaten the ravens but if they finish nine and eight and they don't make the playoffs this is the best send-off ever for bill Belichick for, for that that play to be the reason yeah. um yeah it's pretty incredible um i think uh for my next ones to look at um probably just the tight ends in general so like i think a, a really interesting decision for the ravens right now um is how much do they want to push to try and get Isaiah Likely more involved in the passing game? Um, he was targeted three times in this game. Mark Andrews targeted seven times. Mark Andrews is getting the main focus of defenses uh, because of who he is, um, and the Ravens don't have many other threats. The other problem is that Mark Andrews is at 40%, 50% probably. Like He's not fully healthy right now. Um, Isaiah Likely you know, has proven that he can be somewhat effective. I think he gets a little bit overrated because of a few plays. I think everyone, you know, has very, very high hopes for him. But I do wonder with their limitations on offense, if finding ways to get him the ball more um, could be something that could be beneficial for them. Yeah, I, I let's start with likely because to me, the biggest thing was in, in midseason, him, he was playing only on passing snaps and, and he wasn't, he wasn't, getting in on run snaps. Uh, but then Andrews got hurt and may not even been Andrews hurt. It may have been, he had a, he had a decent game and he completely integrated into the run game as an effective blocker. And I, I don't think we've seen that quite continue at the same level, but I think he's been serviceable as a run blocker for the remainder of the year in a way that they, they, you know, they can have him out there. So now that really opens up the options in terms of having him on the field. One of the reasons they need Andrews on there is because they really want his blocking and, they really need to start making some tough choices about getting him off the field to try and maintain him through the playoffs. If they're, you know, if they want to play more than one game, I guess. <laughs> to, yeah. Uh, a, a completely random thought that's just popped into my head, but I wonder if you almost want to pitch count him a little bit and maybe, maybe yeah. you want to try and um, keep him off the field until you get into, you know, get into the red zone and stuff like that like find some high high value leverage types of plays to try and get him a little bit a little bit more rest i mean maybe he just needs to be out there overall he's still their best their best skill position player as a receiver so yeah and that it would be a hard thing to swallow but andrews earlier in his career when when hurst and boyle were on the team was really a designated receiver much in the way likely was to start this season he's a guy who's out there got a very high percentage of targets on the plays he was on the field but he didn't play a whole lot of snaps and now, um, you know, this this is a this is a case where that he probably needs that treatment again. So you bring out Mark Andrews as a designated receiver, and maybe it means you go ahead and activate four tight ends, or you finally bite the bullet and and sit and sit. They're already doing that, and sit Boyle down and bring Kolar up if he has anything to offer at all uh, at, at this point. But uh, hopefully, Kolar can give you a little bit as a receiver and is not a total zero. And we really don't have any way to know what's, what's going on right now. 
um, in terms of his ability to block in level two and three. That's that's what I want out of a tight end. I don't need an inline guy who can affect the defensive end. I need a guy who can block in level two and three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think the caller point is really interesting. I think I, I think we probably are going to see him at some point down the stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe this is the right time to see what we can get out of him. So, just as a fan, and I know there's not a lot to analyze in terms of the one play we saw from Ajabo, but kind of a cool play, wasn't it? In terms you know, of- I, I'm going to be honest, I, I actually completely missed that. I was like grabbing a okay. drink or water at the time, so I haven't even seen the Ojabo play. Yet. Oh, okay. So let me just talk about it a little bit. So it's third, third and 15, he came on the field, and they, they end up stopping him for, I think, an eight-yard gain on the play. But th- that wasn't the interesting part. He lined up opposite Jack Conklin at right tackle, and Conklin beat the snap by, I would say, two to three clicks. And I don't know if you do this, but when, when I look at the when I look at the thing, I pause it. And then I start cycling through until I see that the, the center snap the ball. So the ball moves. The ball moves again, obviously, because it doesn't stop moving. And then I click it a third time. And like Conklin, sorry, Conklin was already out of his snap. Uh, you know, two clicks before the ball moved is what I really mean to say. And I, it, it's incredible to me that it almost seems like Ajabo caused that to happen. I wonder if Conklin is one of the guys who really tries to work the cadence accurately. But it was just funny. It didn't. I mean, did not get called. Could have been called. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but it was it was interesting that happened. Then he then he then he bull rushed him and he and he made a little bit of progress. But it wasn't he wasn't going to win the play. But the right guard was bubbled and he he was able to get a big help block on him that that uh, uh, probably hurt. <laughs> and and I don't know I, I don't I don't know if he's injured or anything. But they, but he, he did not return for another snap. Yeah, I'd be intrigued to see how much we see him down the stretch. Like any, anything the Ravens get out of him down the stretch here is a bonus. Um, but yeah, it's cool. Cool to see him get on the field. Yeah, yeah a lot of fun. All right, well, let's take a couple of mailbag questions and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day here. But we had a few interesting ones on the offense that I want to... Oh my, we've got a lot more on the offense here that's just come up. Let me get, we get to Brad McGowan here and... Let's talk. Let's see what he has. He says criticizing Roman for poor passing concepts has become rote at this point. But I thought T. Martin is the passing game coordinator, and isn't and it isn't like they don't have smart coaches and can't study what other teams do well. Uh, and even before Lamar got hurt, they were struggling. Receivers aren't great, but they can do some things well. When do we start blaming Harbaugh for this mess? I, I mean, I think people probably are a little bit. I think the. <laughs> I, I again I do think the whole thing is um amplified by personnel struggles. Um so at that point, ultimately I think the overall blame probably has to go to both Harbaugh and DaCosta because the, the makeup of the team this year just didn't leave them any room for error. Mm-hmm. But I think they've got a little bit unlucky um with the you know, with some of the things that have gone that have gone down there. So but I, I think the the question around um, T. Martin being the passing game coordinator, I think that's an entirely fair question. I think we obviously judge it because it's the offensive coordinator, but I, you know, I I simply don't know who has the most input on um, each individual thing. So, you know, it could be that T. Martin is part of that problem. It could be that it's all Greg Roman. It could be that it's all on John Harbaugh because he's not made a move yet. Basically, yeah. yeah, I think I don't think Harbaugh is involved too much in the offense on a certainly on a during the game basis um, and, and uh, uh, between games, they may talk some about what we don't really have. We're not, I'm not privy to that, but uh, they may talk some about, you know, what they need to do differently to, to make things work better. But 
I do think that Harbaugh will be taking a chance this offseason if he wants to stick his neck out there for Roman. I, there's not a lot of things that get John Harbaugh fired, but if but if he if he goes out there and he says, you know what, it's it's it, either he stays or I'm going on anything, then he could he could he could get himself into trouble if Roman were to start next year with the team and things were to go go south. I think that that both of them could be out of jobs. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think that's the risk, and I, that's the point that makes me think it's like a 95 percent certainty yes. that Roman's not here. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's really too much risk for Harbaugh personally, and it, it, that was the way it got to be with Fossil and Billick. Is Billick said, you know, this is too much risk for me personally. Uh, you know, to 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 be that, and he even he even said it out loud, like I got quoted in the in the in the media. But uh, but he was right on the money in terms of it. Um, let's see what else we got in terms of questions. Why is Powers pass blocking emphasized when the Ravens use run to open the pass? Isn't Cleveland a superior run blocker that would aid the pass as well? That comes from AK. A lot, a whole lot of numbers. This is probably some secondary account because they've only got three followers here, but it doesn't matter. The question is legitimate. Um, first of all, evaluating Powers versus Cleveland as a run blocker in the scheme. Would you? Would you? Do you think Cleveland? Sorry, Cleveland has the possibility of bringing more to the Ravens' offense than Ben Powers does. Uh, potentially, but I think the the counter to the potential of Cleveland is the growth of Powers as a um, move blocker. The you know mm-hmm. on pull blocks how he's improved there. So you know that I think that's a pretty big part of it. If I, I think it very much comes down to in the off season what type of deal. Ben Powers commands um, in terms of that, if whether or not, you know, they look to keep him around or, you know, for, from their perspective, the potential of Ben Cleveland, I think, is there. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if they probably have a number in mind around Ben Powers for buy, if they can What's get him back number? for that. I I would love to get him around about what McCarry signed for, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, I think we kind of talked off air. I think you think that's probably unlikely. I think I think that's not gonna happen, but I need to look at what McCarry's deal was like three years, sixteen million. Is that about right? I think uh, so. Yeah, it was it was pretty reasonable per year average. Uh, let me see. Contract value is fifteen point four five million for three years. So he signed twenty two to twenty four for that, and they probably keep him for all that year. So though in the third year, he's got a four point three five million dollar base. They could end up jettisoning him then. So McCarry is here to stay. It it, it would appear. Um, in the case of uh, in the case of Cleveland or, and in the case of Powers, I think a lot of it might have to do with whether or not Kevin Zeitler sticks around. Because Kevin Zeitler being the last year of his contract, he may say, "You know what? I've, I've played enough football. I'm retiring now." Um, I think you know there's a lot of Ravens right now at that age where they'd retire if the Ravens made a Super Bowl. That seems a lot less likely right now than it did, you know, about ten weeks ago. Uh, but uh, is uh, you know. I, I think Zeitler in the last year of his contract with the, with the amount of money he'd have to give up to, uh, uh, to walk away might be a case where he either wants an extension on his contract, kind of like they've done for Yanda for Reed at times. They did it for Ben, for Mason, not Ben Mason, Derek Mason. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's possible he goes. And if that happens, then I think you want both of those guys. I think you want Cleveland and powers both to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the Zeitler thing, Take the Super Bowl out of the equation. Maybe if he gets to a Pro Bowl, he considers that the kind of cap in his career. Um, but yeah, if he goes, then yeah, you want both those guys back. All right. Well, let me see if there's one other good mailbag question out here that I want to hit on. Um, uh, we had a similar question about who do you resign? Um, 
Okay, here's one from Gavin Smith, um, who says, Hello, Ken, could you mention um, in your overall season rankings so far what you think of Jordan Stout, please? I think he's been good, but should he be pinning teams inside the 10 a lot more? I'm just curious what you think of with the film. Uh, go ahead and take this first, and I'll kind of respond. Uh, I think he's been okay. Um, I don't think he's been... I think he's been an obvious drop-off from Sam Cooke. Um, but I think that was always probably going to be quite likely in his first season. Um, PFF grading-wise, he's 24th um, overall in total grade this season. You know, I, as a rookie, I don't think that's a terrible thing. Um, I, I think he has a lot of potential to be one of the best punters in football. Um, certainly, though, when you spend high draft capital on a on a punter and admittedly they did have a number of picks in that round um you do probably want to get a little bit more there yeah i, I agree and I, i've had three stats on the last by the numbers show which each showed a little bit better one of them had to do with his gross punting average in which and that was 20th or something and his net punting average was i think 16th but but if you look at his net versus expected, which I think is a football outsider stat. I was just trying to find it as you were talking there. I can't do it. I think he was all the way up to 12th. So I, I think, you know, if, if I look at Jordan Stouts here, the most important thing is that he doesn't impact how effective Justin Tucker is. And I would have said absolutely no problem prior to this last game. And this last game, we saw a ball come off Tucker's foot. Very funny. The, 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 it, he probably kicked it wrong, which probably means the plant foot didn't come down exactly right. But the ball was wobbling left to right. And I saw Tucker upset on the sidelines and you just can't immediately say whether that's a question of it was a bad hold or, and, and Tucker's upset about the hold or it was, it was a bad kick. And he obviously had another blocked in that game. Couldn't tell you if that was a, a question with the hold either, but I, I don't know if you noticed this on the, on the blocked kick, they had that kick extra distance back from the line of scrimmage. So it was like, I think it was nine yards in the line of scrimmage instead of eight and it still got blocked. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even notice, but yeah, that that definitely adds like a little bit more to it. All right, well, I think we'll we'll call it there. Gordon, really appreciate you coming on the show and spending all this extra time. Love talking football with you. Really appreciate all the nice tangential conversation about cool stuff because hey, that's what that's what we like to roll. Uh, tell folks one more time Twitter handle where they can find your work. Uh, yeah, PFF underscore Gordon on Twitter, and uh, you'll find pretty much anything I write. If it's Ravens related, I'll tweet it out there. All right. Is there anything you're working on in particular you want to talk about? Tell people, is any, any, do you do any analytic studies these days or is most of your writing like using the PFF information and trying to analyze that uh, on a... Yeah, it's pretty much that in terms of what I do. We do we do have people, um, like you mentioned, Ben Brown earlier, uh, Timo Riske and people like that who do some of the deeper um, uh, analytical studies. Um, I'm generally kind of using PFF grades for um, kind of more uh kind of like play-by-play i guess type of um uh descriptions i've i've mentioned how thankful i am to eric about all the pff interns he hired Uh, just some great people tage and arjun and uh, haley was on the show once too but it's great to have have those kind of quality interns who can who can look into a problem at a very deep level and uh, and get at it but uh great staff over there and timo's been on the show too and, and 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 ben but uh, really appreciate having you on, uh, Gordon, and uh, other folks out there. If if you could, please 
Try and find one new person that you'd like to recommend this podcast to and show them how to bring it up on their computer or just play it directly off the website. A lot of older people like me are just not good with having podcasts on their phone and playing them. And if you can you know, share that with one more person, it really helps support the show and we'd appreciate it. Gordon, th- thanks again for coming on. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.